Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, Reed Goosens here, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for dropping by and tuning in and continuing to grow your investing knowledge of U.S. real estate. Each week, we come to you live from Los Angeles, California, talking about all things related to U.S. real estate investing and how you too can successfully break into the U.S. market as an international investor, just like I did. Each episode, we'll be interviewing industry leaders, real estate entrepreneurs, and good old-fashioned go-getters who can help provide you the tools to start successfully investing in the U.S. So let's get into today's show. first time listening and you have no idea who I am, then stop and go back to episode one where I explain a little bit about my background, what I'm doing investing in US real estate, and why I started this show. We have a cracking episode for you today, and my guest really needs no introduction. In December 2012, he left his secure day job as a VP of a successful advertising firm in New York City to pursue real estate investing full-time. Since then, he's gone on to start a hugely successful podcast called The Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. He now controls over $21 million of investment properties, consults investors on real estate investing here in the US, and is the board member for Junior Achievement in Cincinnati and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University. This is quite an impressive list of achievements to obtain within three years. And ladies, unfortunately, he is taken. (laughs) But as you've probably guessed from that incredible list of achievements, my guest is none other than Mr. Joe Fairless. G'day, Joe. How's it going today? Wow, what a wonderful and flattering introduction. I've never been introduced that way. Thank you so much. It's, it, it's going 10 levels better than it was before I heard that introduction, and, this, and today's already been going phenomenally well, so it's off the chain right now. That's great to hear, mate. Look, I just listed a bunch of your achievements that you've, you know, you've completed in just over a bit of it, three and a half years, but I just really wanted to ask, you're human, right? You're not a, you're not a robot. <laughs> That is true. That is true. Eventually, I have to sleep whenever um, the laptop's battery dies. <laughs> like all of us, right? Mate, before we jump into it, do you reckon you can tell the listeners something that most people might not know about you unrelated to real estate investing? Oh, sure. I've been to more Third Eye Blind concerts than you have fingers and toes. Uh, that, that That's something that typically surprises people. And if you are wondering if Third Eye Blind still tours, because that's usually the, the follow-up question that people have. Oh, wow, Third Eye Blind, they still tour? Yes, they still tour. <laughs> and they, uh, they're they even better than that they were in the, in the early 90s. How old are those guys now these days? The lead singer is, I believe, 50 years old. Wow. And he looks like he's 30. It's incredible. I remember rocking out to them in a year seven disco at my school, but uh, good, good <laughs> memories. <laughs> well, well, listeners, part of the reason I have Joe on today's show is because Joe has actually been extremely influential in my investing career to date. And I really wanted my first guest to be someone who's helped essentially shape my future as a real estate entrepreneur here in the US. So Joe, with that being said, can you give a more in-depth insight into your background and really how you got started successfully investing in USA real estate and what motivated you to take action and take the plunge to leave your day job and start your own investing company? Yeah, sure. So I graduated from Texas Tech University in 2005 
and my major was advertising. I moved straight from Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas, which is a bunch of cows and cotton for anyone not from the U.S., to New York City, which is uh, not that at all, skyscrapers <laughs> and concrete. And why I did that is because I wanted to compete with the best of the best in advertising because uh, that's, you know, the perception is that's where the best of the best are in advertising. So I climbed the corporate ladder uh, relatively quickly. I went from a junior project manager to the youngest vice president of a New York City advertising agency. During that time, I, uh, you know, when I first started, I was making $30,000 living in New York City. So not a lot of money and didn't have really anything to save, barely had stuff to, to live off of living in New York City. But as I was, you know, kind of living and spending all my money on rent, uh, I was studying real estate. And uh, my my sister sent me the book Rich Dad Poor Dad. I read that, and then um, was able to gather some some money together and went to a couple seminars. During that time, I realized that real estate was for me. Uh, I read the book. I read a lot of books. I still read a book a month. Right. I read the book Investing for Dummies, um, which talks about the three different ways you can invest: uh, stocks, bonds real estate and investing in LLCs. Then my sister sent me that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was really interested in in real estate. So I ended up going to seminars. And from those seminars, I uh, learned how to buy houses. Uh, So I was buying single family homes in Texas, even though I was living in New York City, which is a couple thousand miles away. Uh, And so I was, you know, essentially... Outside of any any of the the currency uh, exchange stuff, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was investing. Uh, I was an out of out of uh, country investor because I was so darn far away. Uh, so I, I was doing that, and then eventually I realized that advertising wasn't for me. It wasn't fulfilling. Tony Robbins talks about the six human needs, and I won't go into all, all six of them, but the last two. He talks about lead to fulfillment, and that's growth and contribution. And I didn't feel like I was growing. I didn't feel like I was contributing. For me personally, other people can feel that way for for advertising, but you know, I just wasn't wired that way. So I started uh, looking at other opportunities, and I had been teaching a class on how to buy single-family homes in other cities where they actually cash flowed because in New York City, you don't get cash flow. Uh, you get appreciation, and I wanted to cash flow. So I um, was teaching the class, and through that, I talked to an investor who was a family friend of mine, actually my oldest brother's good friend. I've known him for about 15 years. And he's like, well, if you ever do anything bigger, then let, let me know. And uh, where I basically how I make my money is I raise money from investors. We buy apartment communities, and then we share in the profits. That's, that's incredible, Joe. That story, I love those stories. You know, people sick of maybe the rat race or, you know, something that's not fulfilling as, as you sort of alluded to and then, you know, working for the man or whatever it might be. And then you actively taking action to change the, you know, your future for the better, you know, big pat on the back. And I guess a big pat on the back to your sister for sending yeah, you all those yeah. books, Yeah, eh? No kidding. <laughs> She's a real estate agent in Dallas, Fort Worth. And without her, I wouldn't have gotten to real estate. So absolutely. Fantastic. Mate, so the other reason I got you on the show today was to talk a little bit about in US investing lingo, which is the topic of today's show. And as an international investor myself here in the US, my first real learning curve when I moved to the US and started learning all about successfully investing in USA real estate 
was really understanding the different terminology and lingo. And I think for those other international investors uh, listening out there, I really think this is a great topic and a great starting point for anyone considering breaking into the US market. So, so Joe, uh, there are a lot of different acronyms uh, in investing lingo and understanding this is key. Can you walk us through maybe some of the basic acronyms that international investors would need to know before taking the plunge? Yeah, and we're talking uh, multifamily, right? Yeah, multifamily, just really sort of, you know, investing 101. I can probably, you know, get you started on just, I remember one of the first things I learned when I first moved here was like net operating income, you know, mm-hmm. NOI, that's an acronym, you know, people are like, what's NOI? You know, we get, we'll get we go into cap rates and we'll go into cash flow. That's all, to an international investor, that's very foreign, you know, that we don't okay. talk like that in in Australia, you know, maybe a little bit you do, but, you know, cap rates, not so much. So I think just really uh, buttoning up those in lingos. So, yeah. So NOI is net operating income, as you mentioned, and the the definition is basically the effective gross income, and we can get into that, um, the effective gross income minus the expenses. So it essentially shows you the total cash flow before you pay the debt service or the mortgage. And so I, I, we have to define EGI or effective gross income for that to make any sense. And the effective gross income is the total potential rent, so all the money that you could get, minus the vacancy. Um, so you know the 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 money that goes out the door because uh, or isn't received because of people not living there, um, or because people aren't paying to live there. Plus the other income, and other income could be pet rent, coin laundry, it could be late fees, it could be you know vending machines, it could be any number of other things. So the NOI from now that we've done those definitions, let's talk just common sense and practicality. The NOI shows you how much money you're making um, before you have to pay the bank, the mortgage payment and how, why that's relevant. Well, no, number one, it just shows you how much money um, you're making uh, before the bank. But uh, another reason why that's relevant is it helps you determine you know, the amount of debt that you can put on the property. It also helps you look at different types of properties and compare them against each other. And that gets into the cap rate, which is essentially if you paid all cash for something, what would your return be? So the definition of cap rate or capitalization rate is the NOI divided by the sales price, and that would give you the the cap rate. So, so we'll, we'll do an example. Um, if you got an NOI of, say, $25,000 and the sales price is $125,000, then just simple math, 25K divided by 125K is uh, 20% cap rate. Right, which is you know a great cap rate, but <laughs> I'd love to buy those properties day in day out, but uh, not not necessarily so. So typically, when you're looking at, at different markets, what what's a good cap rate that you know if, if someone said to an international investor, "Hey, I've got a cap rate of X," what would that be? And you know, just you know, I, I know there's different uh, yardsticks for for different risk tolerances, but in general, what's a good cap rate? Yeah, I think that's a tough question to answer directly because it depends on your investing goals. Um, essentially, what cap rates do is they indicate risk versus return. So, a lower cap rate, let's say a three percent. So, if you can if you can buy a building at a three percent cap rate, well, then it better be in the most stable of stable markets and 
it better be within that market in a very stable sub-market. So for example, you might see a, a cap rate of 3% in East Village in, in, in Manhattan in New York City. And that building is, uh, it's highly unlikely that the value is going to go down to zero. It's highly likely that it's going to continue to have demand for rent. But the downside is that if you paid all cash for it, then you're making 3% on your money. Whereas if you buy, say, a property in Cincinnati, where I'm based, then you might find a cap rate of about 8%. And the 8% cap rate is, again, the amount that you can make in ca- if you, on your return if you paid all cash for that property. But the uh, downside compared to the 3 cap is that it's not as conservative of an investment from a market standpoint because it's not in New York City where we know there's always going to be demand. It, it's in Cincinnati where there's less demand because there's, you know, in New York City, you're not going to have any more demand than, than that unless you're talking about maybe Miami or San Francisco or LA. Yep, yep, cool. Natural progression of cap rate is sometimes a property might not be, they might not give the purchase price, but you might, you might know the cap rate and you may know net operating income. You know, can you use cap rate and understanding, you know, your market well enough to sort of establish whether an asking price or a purchase price is on par with the market or is above market rate? You know, do you use that as a, in your, you know, analysis at all? That, that's what really cap rates are for is to uh, compare similar properties so that you know what what how they stack up against each other so the cap rate ties into the profitability of that property so then it's just a matter of the different types of properties that you mm-hmm. want to look at so some properties like um uh, there there's different classifications of properties a class a tends to be new construction or built within the last 5 to 10 years class b property is probably going to be built around 2000 uh, maybe the 90s a class c property probably um 80s or 70s and then class d would be anything uh, earlier than that. And and so you, you want to compare the different types of cap rates across the different types of classifications of properties because you might find a class C property or you might find a cap rate of say 9%, but the property is a class C property that was built in you know the 70s, which might have more deferred maintenance and might have more um, ongoing, what they call non-reoccurring expenses, but the non-reoccurring expenses tend to reoccur uh, magically. (laughs) Um, And compare that to, say, in the same market, you could buy a Class A property at a 6% cap rate. Well, you might look at it and be like, well, shoot, 8% versus 6%. I want the 8% all day long. Well, not so fast because you are going to have um, it's likely that you'll have fewer of the uh, non-reoccurring reoccurring expenses happen because it's a newer property. Right. And you just sort of, that was a great you know, explanation on terms of class of property, but I guess there's also class of neighborhoods. Is that not correct? That you might have a class C property in a class B neighborhood or vice versa. So it's sort of, you know, when you look at a market, you need to know there's different classes to neighborhoods as well and the type of demographic that rents, you know, in our case, we buy multifamily properties or even single family properties if you're doing that as well. But you need to understand the class of neighborhood that you're purchasing. Is that not also correct? Yeah, you'll have, uh, again, 
A, B, C, and D neighborhoods. A is the most affluent neighborhood. You got expensive homes nearby. Maybe there's a golf course. B would be a middle class part of town, safe neighborhood. You, you'd, we, we'd all live there uh, by choice. Class C, we've got low to moderate income neighborhood. You would uh, maybe live there if you got laid off. It's not entirely dangerous, but it's it, it's kind of rough around the edges. And class D is high crime, very bad neighborhood. You'd rather pitch a tent somewhere and go <laughs> camping than, than live there. Yeah, I've been to a few of those uh, class D and C neighborhoods uh, before. But, you know, it's all very good learning stuff. Mate, another thing that I wanted to just quickly touch on was uh, internal rate of return. A lot of people, and particularly international investors, when they look at different uh, asset classes and, and types of investments, they, they, they really use IRR as a, as a yardstick. Can you explain a little bit more about how an international investor can use an internal rate of return as a measure to compare real estate investment, to compare stock investment, to compare you know bond investment? Yeah, I'll keep it simple. So we've got, I want, and I think it'd be helpful to compare it to cash on cash return um, and just the differences. So cash on cash return is the amount of cash you get back divided by the amount of money that you put in, divided by however much time that it took to get you that cash back. For example, if your annual cash flow is a million and you have total money into deals, 3.5 million, uh, then your cash on cash return, 1 million divided by 3.5 is 28.6%, assuming that was for one year. If it's over two years of your cash flow is that amount, then you simply divide that by two. So it was up 14.3%. So that, that's pretty straightforward stuff. Now, when we, when we talk about internal rate of return, the, the difference with internal rate of return is that internal rate of return factors in when you receive that money and it factors in the time frame on a uh, of when you received it and it assumes that you're reinvesting it back at that same rate. So the internal rate of return, uh, how you calculated it or how you calculate it, uh do it with a spreadsheet. Uh, there's it's a it's a crazy formula, but essentially what it tells you is that this is the money that you got back at this point in time if you had reinvested it at the same rate, then this will be your overall internal rate of return at the end of it. So the, the technical definition is the, uh, the rate needed to convert the sum of all future uneven cash flow to equal your initial investment or down payment. Common sense approach to internal rate of return is it simply factors in the money that you receive when you receive it. So for example, the cash on cash return, I didn't mention that you know, it was quarterly payouts. Um, that that you received it. it. I was just said, hey, that's this is how much you received in year one, year two, and this is your annual cash on cash return. Whereas internal rate of return, if you're receiving quarterly payout, that's going to take that into consideration, uh, assuming that you reinvested into something else. Okay, and, and then in terms of, I'm assuming when you when you're talking about IRR and cash on cash, it's the cash that you've invested physically. It's not it's not got nothing to do with with the debt or the loan. It's really the return on money. Of you know, if I give you fifty thousand dollars, Joe, and you give me money back, it's the return that you give me on what I invested. Is that correct? That's correct. It's money that came out of came out of your account. And one thing I'd like to mention about internal rate of return 
Um, just to give some context on benchmarks, good benchmarks would be north of 12%. If you've got something north of 12% internal rate of return on a project, then you'll likely generate some interest. Um, anything between 12 to 14% would be some interest. Anything between 15 to 17%, you'll get the majority of people's interest. Anything north of 17%, you know, around 18 to 20 to 22%, you'll get pretty much everybody's interest. And, and typically the types of projects I'm assuming your investing company goes for is north of 17%. Was that correct? That's, yeah, yeah. We wouldn't do anything if it wasn't north of that. Cool. All right, Joe. Well, look, you've given some listeners some absolute cracking information and provided a great insight into you know USA real estate investing lingo. I think you're ready to give me your top five investing tips for the US. Are you ready to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. What's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? It, it all ties back to health, quite frankly, and energy. And so the first thing I do every day whenever I wake up is I think of 10 things I'm grateful for. Five of them are things that are actually happened. And then five of them are things that have not happened, but I'm already being thankful for them and being grateful for them. And then I uh, drink a liter of water with a scoop of wheatgrass mixed into it. Wow. That's, that's very healthy. <laughs> How does that wheatgrass go down? It goes down well? Uh, it goes down well after doing it for now over two years every morning. Um, but my girlfriend who has just started it uh, would not have the same opinion of it. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have to try it. I'm going to take that. I've written that down. Wheatgrass shot in the morning. Mate, what is the most influential tool you use in your real estate business and why? That would be my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Uh, because it's, yeah, it's, it's all about building the relationships and having conversations with investors, uh, with brokers. And you know, most of the time, you can't do it in person because everyone's got crazy schedules. So I'd say the cell phone's most useful. Good, good. And what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? Well, a lot of things, but since you said most exciting, I can only pick one. And uh, I would say the 250 units that we closed on that you're well aware of in August. And you know, we just sent out the first quarterly payouts to the investors last week, and it's going phenomenally well. So, uh, you know, just ensuring that that continues to follow the business plan that we have outlined and uh, keep on rocking. Cool. Well, just to elaborate a little bit more on what deal Joe is talking about for all those listening out there, uh, Joe, myself, and a few other business partners closed on a 250-unit deal in mid-August this year. The property is in Houston, Texas, and we raised over $3.3 million as a down payment, and we purchased the deal. It's a Class B asset in a Class B neighborhood, and this was actually my first major syndication, and it was great partnering with Joe and the other investors involved. And to be honest, it's a cracker of a deal, and we're planning on purchasing more similar deals together in the future. And mate, what's the most influential person in your career to date? I would say Matt Britton. Matt Britton is the founder of the advertising agency that uh, I work for. He is one of the top entrepreneurs in the United States. He just you know, wrote a book on millennials and the, the impact of millennials. I learned six years uh, working with him um, how to be a successful entrepreneur, how the mentality to have when, whenever you're approaching business, in particular, you know, just Getting straight to the point 
with the the business that you're in um, and with in having the conversations and being very clear and, and candid with people when during your the conversations that you're having I, I learned how to kind of overcome adversity uh, I actually interviewed him on my podcast and he talked about uh, in 2008 he actually had the had our entire company as payroll paid by his American Express card because the sky was falling in our economy and then that was 2008 in 2012 he sold the company for 40 million dollars wow so it it those types of stories are incredibly inspiring and then to be able to learn from him directly uh for those years it was he's definitely been the most influential person from a business standpoint yeah i could imagine that going through that adversity of 2008 and 2009 and just having the sort of fortitude and the sort of vision to keep pushing through that knowing that it's going to eventually there's going to be a silver lining to every cloud and getting there you said what 2012 you sold the company that's great yep that's great mate last question is what's your best deal you've completed to date in the u.s well i i would say my first deal just because it it, it got the ball rolling mm-hmm. i i really would um it was a seventy six thousand dollar four bedroom two bath house i purchased in 2009 in, in Dallas, Texas. And, you know, it, it, it brings in about 250 bucks a month for me. First six months, it brought in negative $250 a month because we had to evict the tenant. But I learned a lot of lessons uh, from that. And, you know, that started the whole process of me investing in real estate and got me to where I'm at right now. So really, you could say you got your feet wet on your first deal. It's, uh, I think a lot of people would say that that would be their first, uh, the best ever deal that they've done, whether you make money or not. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, mate, finally, I'm going to start a bit of a tradition. I want you to give us your best crack at an Australian accent. <laughs> what, what, what should I say? Let's see. I don't know. Welcome to investing in the US, uh, an Aussie's guide to US real estate. How about that? Welcome to investing in US and an Aussie's guide to investing in real estate (laughs) (laughs) mate that i'll give you an a for effort but you butchered that (laughs) what the hell what do you mean i butchered i thought it sounds good when we'll replay it we'll uh we'll compare my accent to your accent (laughs) mate and lastly where can people reach you to continue the conversation I uh, just Google my name, Joe Fairless, J-O-E, and then F as in Frank, A-I-R-L-E-S-S. Uh, and then, you know, I, I've got that, the podcast, it's a daily podcast called The Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever. I've interviewed Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, if you want to listen to those interviews, just Google Joe Fairless, Robert Kiyosaki, or Joe Fairless, Barbara Corcoran. Um, and it's daily advice uh, that's uh, just, uh, we cut out all the fluffy stuff and get straight to the insights that move your business forward. Great. It's a great show, by the way, listeners, if you're, if you're looking for another good podcast to tune into. Well, Joe, thank you so much. We're giving some great takeaway information to all the listeners on understanding US real estate investing lingo and giving us a full rundown on your background and how you got started successfully investing in the US. You are, you're truly an inspirational guy uh, and a mentor to me. So thanks for dropping by and we'll catch up soon. Good day, Reid. <laughs> Well, there you have it, a quick and dirty intro to understanding U.S. real estate lingo. We covered some good topics from defining cash flow to net operating income to understanding how cap rates can be used to better understand if you're paying too much for a property or too little for a property. Make sure you check out the show notes for any links we mentioned today. And a summary of our conversation with Joe will go up on rsnpropertygroup.com forward slash episode two. 
Thanks for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge. I hope you got a lot out of today's show. And for any of the future episodes, please search for an Aussie's Guide to US Real Estate on iTunes today. And you continue the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter. So until next week, take care and happy investing. Thank you.